So today we're talking to Alex Laurie. And Alex, I know you do a lot of things in the cooperative sector, but I wanted to talk to you specifically about your attempts to launch a cooperative railway line and, and also lightweight community transport. Um, let's start with GoUp, which is the, the, sure. co the co-op railway line. Um, I notice you've got a, a Wikipedia page. So do it's, I don't think I've ever looked at it. It's real, so you've got to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> so where did, where did the idea come from? <coughs> well, um, that's a very good question. I can remember the first inklings of this was uh, way back in the, uh, the 1990s when I was living in Leeds. And um, looking at the rail network there and thinking, well, it's all very well, but... Um, Surely there's more that could be done here. Surely there are extra connections that could be added. Surely these lines that all radiate outwards um, could be complemented by radial routes that cut across. I thought, you know, surely it can't be beyond the, the, the wit of everyone. And uh, surely some innovator couldn't um, add these new routes. And indeed, I was quite um, impressed with some, uh, some friends of mine in Huddersfield Green Party who, as a fundraising tool, had started running charter trains to the Edinburgh Festival from various stops in West Yorkshire. And I was stunned to discover that a bunch of people, no different to myself, uh, well, I say no different to myself, they did have an ex-network rail employee among their number. Ah. Um, they could simply turn up, say, yeah, we'd like to book a train to run on this day from here to here, and uh, we'll sell the tickets, and if we can turn a profit, and uh, you know we make a bit of money on it, and they and they ran it as a fundraiser, and it was um, enormously successful. And I was hugely impressed with that. And so this sort of planted a seed, I guess. Though at that stage, I wasn't even you know close to thinking about trying to do it myself. Um, and then I moved to Somerset. I got more involved in cooperative development, and um, we were uh, living in Yeovil. Now Yeovil is a large and fast-growing town in Somerset, but it has. Um, an extremely unhelpful layout of tracks coupled with a very limited service which never sticks to regular clock-based times. Uh, little has changed in the, uh, wow, 15 years I was living there. Um, and, uh, and I began to think someone ought to organise some additional rail services. And I could see that you could take trains from the West Country all the way through the West Midlands simply by using existing track. No need to lay any additional track. Um, and I thought, you know, the problem with this blasted country is that everything is assumed to be about getting to London. Mm. And we don't build our road network on that basis. Everyone accepts that the roads are going to be able to take us from one place to another place uh, and not by going to London and then changing direction and going back out of London again. Why on earth do we apply that logic to rail? But there used to be a lot of cross-rail, there used to be a lot of um, cross-country rail, didn't there? Well, certainly there were more lines and there were more opportunities, but they tended to be, there was a big distinction between slow services and express services, and the express services have always favoured London. I mean, the, the exceptions, of course, are the, uh, the cross-country network, which has always been a separate franchise in its own right. And uh, yeah, without that, it really would be. But the, but the, the statistic that lodged in my mind was... Um, 70% of all rail journeys begin or end in London. 
I'm not sure if that's current, by the way. That's probably, people have been bandying that around for years and years and years. It must presumably be changing over time. But 70%. It's in that ballpark. And people always use that statistic to say, well, there you go. London is the only place people really want to travel to. If you want to make money on the rail network, you've got to have a route to London. And I took exactly the opposite conclusion from it. I said, well, what you're telling me is that the routes into London are saturated. That bit of the market is satisfied. It's all the other market sectors, all the routes other than trips into London, where there is demand that no one is meeting. Why don't we meet it? And I think the last piece of the jigsaw was uh, in 2000. Uh, the um, uh, great cooperative thinker uh, Jim Brown published Cooperative Capital. And this was before the big uh, boom in community shares. It was when um, co-ops raising investment directly from social investors was still an extremely unusual thing to do. And he published a very detailed study of how it could be done, uh, what kind of um, rights these non-user members could be given. And he opened up the possibility that even very capital-intensive enterprises, which had previously been assumed to be you know, something co-ops couldn't really consider, could in fact uh, be taken on by mutual organisations following co-op principles. And I put it all together and I started thinking, we could do this. We could form a co-op that ran rail services. Oh, Hull Trains. I was also keeping an eye on Hull Trains, who were one of the most prominent open access operators and I thought, well, what's that? What's that one? Hull trains. Oh, Hull, uh, as in the town Hull. Oh, absolutely. And basically, um, a group of business people in Hull noticed that uh, there were no direct services from this major northern city to get where else? London. And so they uh, they organised. I think a sort of once every two hour express service from Hull down to London, and they made it very successful. When you say open access, what do you mean? Right, okay, so I have to make the distinction between open access and franchise services. So most services on the railway network since rail privatisation in 1992 have been franchises. Uh, the government has split the, uh, all the major routes that exist in uh, the country into a set of, of blocks. Typically they are regional franchises, so you have Great Western covering the Cornish Peninsula, you have uh, London Midlands going up to Birmingham. You have the Northern franchise. Um, you have the uh, Southwestern, Southern franchises. When you look at a map of the rail franchises, with the exception of ScotRail, Northern, Cross Country, what you see is a group of wedges all radiating out from London. And they, each franchise has got one London station, so GWR get Paddington, for example. And then they get all the chunks of track that uh, emanate out from that station all the way to, in GWR's case, Penzance. And um, so, and, and that way, virtually all the existing, the established routes on the railway were allocated franchises. The franchises were auctioned, and the highest bidder got to run them. Um, or in the case of GWR, which is a heavily subsidised franchise, the franchise the bidder requiring the least subsidy got the run. Now, the 1992 privatisation has always left open the possibility that some rail services would be needed that didn't appear in any franchise. The, the, the Rail Privatisation Act always allowed for the possibility that new rail services might be introduced 
outside of these franchises simply by entrepreneurs developing their own route and uh, making the case for them finding space on the timetable and starting to operate. Um, because the government wanted to um, ensure it could raise as much money as possible from the franchises, it obviously had an interest in protecting franchisees from competition. And so there were all sorts of restrictions around this, but over time the restrictions were gradually reduced. Uh, but for some reason, open access rail never really took up. Even today, I think 0.1% of all rail goods in the UK are open access. The others are all done through franchises. It's a pathetic, minuscule quantity. And over time, unease has grown in the regulator, the Office of Rail and Road, which is charged with ensuring competition on the railways. Unease has grown that the railways might just not be a very competitive marketplace. Astonishing conclusion, I know, but. Um, so we are turning up and saying, well, okay, you say you want competition on the railways, we will put you to the test. We would like to compete, please. And we've got a perfectly sensible idea, and we'll you know, work out a good timetable, check that it's feasible, start running trains, what could possibly be wrong with that? On a number of occasions, I've been warned by people that the railways are the third most heavily regulated section of the economy after, I think it's air travel and nuclear power stations. Right. Ah, boy, if I'd known what I was taking on, I probably would have reconsidered. So do you think um, the regulators are on side, or do you think they're, they're against what you're trying to do, or would they like to help if they could, or...? The only way I can put it is they are conflicted. They do genuinely want competition on the railways. They do genuinely want innovation. They do genuinely want people bringing forward new ideas. But at the same time, another part of their remit is to ensure that the railways are safe and that the railways are reliable. As soon as you, I mean, you can imagine, it's not difficult to realize that the more trains that operate on a railway, the more risks there are, and the more difficult it is to stick to a regular timetable. So when you think about it, a perfectly safe railway and a perfectly reliable railway is one in which no trains actually run at all. Yeah. So there is always this balancing act. They have to try and figure out a way in which they can set good standards of safety and reliability, but at the same time allow a little bit of openness and innovation and complexity and new ideas. And I have to say, I'm conflicted myself. I mean, I am lost in admiration of the safety track record of Britain's railways. It is exceptional how many miles people travel without getting hurt. Really quite remarkable. And, you know, do I want to compromise on that? I don't really. But at the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, if we put forward a proposal and it is stymied because the safety precautions we have to take make it either unfeasible or too expensive, what's the alternative? What's the, uh, the counterfactual? Well, the answer is people travel on the roads. Now, I just much imagine... More dangerous. I just imagine going to the ORI and saying, got this great idea for a new rail service. Firstly, we're not going to have one or two trains every hour. We're going to have lots and lots of little ones. And they're not going to be driven by professional drivers 
if folk can drive the train themselves, the passengers will just sort of get together and decide who's the best train driver on board, and they can, they can take over driving the train. And there won't be a timetable. They'll just launch out onto the tracks out and wet. And, uh, you know, some of the trains will be going really fast, some of them will go much, much slower, but they'll just wiggle around each other as best they can. Obviously, the, the, <laughs> the regulator would go, that's insanely unsafe. And yet that describes a motorway. <laughs> so if the high standards of safety make it difficult or impossible for new rail services to be introduced that will tempt people out of their cars, then what will happen is they're exposed to the much greater risks on the road network. So again, there is a balance that has to be struck here. If you That's a really, really interesting point, isn't it? If they really, really, really are concerned about people's safety, they really have to try and get people off the roads? Absolutely. Risk analysis. Risk analysis is, yeah. uh, presents itself as a sort of a quasi-scientific method, but it, is, it starts with an assumption that you've drawn a boundary and that you are only concerned with risks within that boundary, and yet the reality is that the boundaries are permeable. People move in and out of the, the area that you're concerned with, and the decisions you take within that boundary determine how many people drift out of it into other areas that you haven't considered. So, you know, that has to be part of a risk analysis is what will people do if we don't let this service go ahead? Yeah, yeah. So is it, is it only one route that you're looking at? Right, okay, so the route. Um, <clears throat> right from the get-go, I had two sort of big ideas. Big idea number one was that Yeovil was on a little branch line which actually, you know, did connect up some, some quite important lines, um, but there just weren't enough trains on that branch line that we should be making some use of that branch line. The second thing I had was that um, at Westbury, if you don't want to go into London, there is a little cut through, a little back route through the town of Melksham. And at the time we started this, Melksham had two trains a day. It was pathetic. They had a station there, and they had what's called a parliamentary service. It was so small as to be useless, but the, um, uh, it would require an act of parliament to remove it altogether, and no one wanted to do that, and so they kept minimum service going. There was no use to anybody. And we thought, well, blindly, we'd start at Yeovil, go up through Melksham, carry on to the West Midlands, maybe. That would be a really clever route, and it will be of enormous benefit to people of Melchior and Yeovil. How did you know the demand was there? Mm, well, huh, yeah, only because we were living in the area, and we were the demand. We were standing on station platforms thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. If I don't catch this train, there isn't another one for an hour and a half. Right. So, you know, we were the demand. That was how we knew, <laughs> which is not scientific, quite intuitive, but, you know, based in reality, I think. Um, but yeah, you know, the, this was the process that we had to go through. Having got a sort of very vague idea, we knew that there needed to be some really detailed analysis of, you know, demand actually quantified. And um, I started to realise that actually planning a rail service could be a little bit like planning and financing wind farms. And wind farms had been enormously successful in uh, the cooperative field, you know, uh, because although you don't know, exactly how hard the wind is going to blow on any particular day, averaged out over a year, you can make a pretty fair guess. And it's much the same with the flow of rail passengers. Sure, you don't know whether there's going to be a hen party turning up mob-handed tomorrow at the station, but averaged out over a year, the pattern is pretty consistent and predictable. And you can make some fairly 
sensible um, calculations as to if we reduce the travel time on this route by this much, if we increase the frequency of services by this much, we can predict with a fair degree of accuracy what the effect will be on passenger numbers. And um, assuming that the our fares are comparable with other operators, we can make it an equally robust assumption about how much money we'll generate. Job done. And so that's what we set out to do. And so our first fundraising was what you might call seed corn investment, to try and get enough money just to carry out some basic feasibility studies. And we did all that in 2010, I believe. Now, at this point, I have to own up to a mistake. And my God, I must have known it was a mistake at the time. I think I've been advising people even then not to do this. The temptation when you're starting a new enterprise is to try and do everything. To have to bring out every bright idea you've ever had and try and put it all under this one umbrella, rather than focusing on the most promising the ideas and just making damn sure that works. And so we flirted with light rail, we flirted with car clubs, we wandered about bus routes, we put resources and energy into all sorts of different side projects. Um, and it did detract from our work on the mainline rail uh, project. And that was, in retrospect, a mistake. We also made the mistake of hiring a CEO too soon. I mean, clearly, you know, this operation was always going to need someone quite skilled. And we made a hire based on someone who had experience not in the mainstream rail industry, but on an independent heritage railway. And we thought that was quite a good sort of connection to make because, you know, they were coming in from the outside, so frankly, they were cheaper, but um, they did have genuine rail experience. It was a mistake. We blew loads of money on the guy who, with the best will in the world, could not um, take us very far forward at that time. And so, we burned up our resources too quickly, and that created all sorts of problems further down the road. <coughs> At first, we thought we'd got a pretty clear mechanism. We went to Network Rail, we explained what we wanted to do. They said, yes, there is a process for open access operators. Here's what you have to do, step by step, off you go. And we thought, well, this is going to be easy. But the further we got into it, the more problematic it became. What you have to do in order to get a rail service off the ground is you have to have the rolling stock, the actual trains available for you and at the time that you need them. When you say available, do you have to buy trains? Good God, no. No, that really would be a challenge. No, uh, although you can buy trains if you want to, that's incredibly capital intensive. Uh, much more likely is that you lease trains. Right. Effectively, the rolling stock leasing organisations are all various varieties of bank, really. And they have, they they lease have the, uh, the rolling stock as assets. And right, so, so the maintenance of the, the maintenance of the trains and the carriages is nothing to do with you. That's right. Yes, yes. Um, the, uh, the they they retain the responsibility right. for most of the big maintenance tasks. And so we've got a fairly predictable uh, leasing payment every single month. But the fact is, at the time that we were doing this, and it's still pretty much the case now, there was a terrible shortage of rolling stock. People were still using stuff that was 30, 40 years old. Um, there were never enough um, carriages. There have been this uh, period of about 15 years with continual increases in rail passenger numbers, and new rolling stock just had not been provided uh, fast enough to keep up with it. So there was a terrible shortage. So the first problem we had was did anybody have rolling stock suitable? And we needed 
pretty odd following stop. On the one hand, we were going to be crawling through small stations on branch lines like Yeovil and Melksham, and then within a few minutes of that, we'd be hammering along the high-speed express line between Swindon and Didcot, trying to get up to 100 miles an hour. So it wasn't just that we couldn't find any rolling stock, it was that we had had very particular types of rolling stock. And then when you add to that the fact that really we wanted to be a super-duper, ultra-eco, um, best-in-class environmental performance, we made life very difficult for us. So problem number one, can we get hold of rolling stock? Problem number two, we had to have a demand forecast that we could rely upon, that investors could rely upon, that the Office of Rail and Road could see was introducing new passengers to the network and not simply pinching passengers from other operators. And that would be up to date and current. And the third problem was we had to have a timetable that had been checked against the existing network rail timetable and there was definitely room for us on the railway. All these things had to be ready at the same time. If you had to wait, the chances were that by the time the third element turned up, one of the other two elements would have gone out of date. And we have been struggling with that for the better part of a decade. It's a bloody nightmare, I'll tell you. And now, where are you at now? I mean, when, okay. when, when might I be able to catch a cooperative train? Let's bring this up to date. And I should say that in 35 minutes, I have a conference call booked with... Um, Dan Fredrickson of Network Rail, so I've got to actually get back to the cold face then. Right, okay. So, we, have, we think we've solved the rolling stock problem. Porterbrook, one of the biggest rail leasing companies, have developed a new version of their um, old uh, electric multiple units. They realise that there are now, the, uh, the UK network is really bitty. Some parts of it are electrified, some parts of it aren't. You want to use electric power whenever you can, not just for environmental reasons, but for performance reasons too. But large chunks of the network just aren't electrified. And so Portabrook realized that if they refurbished their old 319s, gave them a new diesel power plant, but kept the electric capability, they would have trains that could go anywhere, do anything. And they're called class 769s. They are pretty fast. Not quite as fast as I'd like, but pretty fast, um, and come in four unit um, configurations, which is, you know, plenty of seating. Um, hopefully we can get them reasonably full, though it's uh, <coughs> perhaps a little bit larger than we would really have liked. So there we go, 769. And um, they are, you know, for the time being at least, they're available to us. We can place an order, we can have them delivered on time, that'll work. So we think we've got the rolling stock more or less taken. Then we have the demand forecast. It's gone out of date. We're going to have to replace the demand forecast. We can't replace the demand forecast until we've got an up-to-date timetable. The up-to-date timetable has been held up because Network Rail is insisting on sectional runtime. That so is caught in a sort of catch-22 situation. And, and well, what Network Rail is saying is that we have got um, newish rolling stock operating on a route that it's never operated on before, we need to prove exactly how fast, and I mean exactly, these trains are going to run over the different sections of our route, taking into account gradients, slowing down for stations, uh, the line speed around various points, signaling, oh my god, we spent three days talking about one bridge just outside Bidford where the 
bridge is so low over the tracks that the wires come down too steeply and so you have to lower the pantograph to go onto the bridge then raise the pantograph afterwards uh, in order to keep up your speed. Oh my gosh. Sounds fiendishly complicated. Oh, you would not believe. So, um, I think, however, one of the interesting things was that at the same time as we're doing all this, GWR are trying to increase the number of uh, trains they're operating. They are, um, the government has asked them to provide more services to South Wales, and that means they're increasing the number of uh, trains going between Swindon and Didgo. And that is going to use up very limited capacity there, particularly because we're not quite as fast as we ought to be, and so we take longer to get over that section. So that's a huge problem for us. Now, one of the things that's been bedeviling our project is that, you know, you, you'll have noticed over the years, the rail industry makes the news from time to time, and not in a good way. So we had the franchising calamity, when Virgin challenged the award of a franchise, one in court, the government had to admit the entire franchising process was a complete disaster. That stopped new franchises being issued, which drastically reduced demand for new rolling stock, and meant that the rolling stock that we were after suddenly became unavailable. That caused a huge problem. Then, more recently, we've had all the um, disruption on Southern Rail, all the arguments about uh, driver-only operation. Um, we've had um, this calamity last year when Network Rail, when the operators tried to introduce new timetables, and Network Rail simply broke under the strain. And for weeks, there was chaos on the railways as trains simply failed to turn up when they were meant to, and they just didn't have enough drivers who were familiar with the new routes. Oh, it was appalling. They are still recovering from that. Interestingly, that has had the effect of preventing GWR from introducing its new timetable. And we are now, perhaps, possibly, a little ahead of them, which is astonishing to me. And so, 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 when, so just to push you, when do you think we might see some uh, cooperative trains running? Well, huh, this is why I'm having a conversation with Dan uh, this morning. My hope, is that we can operate in December 19. That wow. is, that's our target. But we have, um, we have two big problems. Firstly, uh, although we've now got these sectional run times prepared, uh, I've only just been told that before they can be submitted to the assurance, before they can be submitted to the timetable process for consultation, they have to be assured by Network Rail, which basically means Network Rail have to redo the work that our consultants have done. And I've just been told that there has to be a wait of um, a month before that can happen. And during that wait, we miss a deadline. So that's absolutely causing me to tear my hair out, because this is, they've known for months that we were preparing these SRTs, they could totally have been ready to assure them in time for this this deadline, but they were. But it's not it's not a million years away. It could be it could be 2019, 2020, something like yeah, that. Worst, worst case scenario is we're pushed back to May 2020. Now, right. in May 2020, that's the worst case scenario. Okay. In May 2020, well, it, it's pretty bad because in May 2020 we would once again be up against GWR trying to get their extra services onto the grid, and so once again we have this huge tussle for capacity. So how can people help you? What, I mean, you, you're looking for investors. You're looking. What are you looking for? How can people help? That is such a difficult question to answer. We, I mean, we are running very short on money, so investment is an issue. But I've got to say, 
you know, investment, you should think of it as a donation. It's that high risk. You know, the, uh, it, so yeah, we would like money. We would be able to proceed much better and much more reliably if we had more money. But can we say to people that it's an investment that is secure? No, absolutely not. It's crazy high risk, much more high risk than any other community sharership. And for that reason, while we're very happy to accept money and uh, issue shares, you know, people have got to understand that you know, they should think of it as they would a donation. So, you know, that would help, no question about it. Well, it's a very that, exciting project, isn't it? It's a very exciting idea to think of a, 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 a cooperative <clears throat> in the rail network. It's a, it's a really, it's a really... Yeah, it, it is, and I'm so frustrated that, you know, if I had known now, if, if I'd known back then what I know now, I could have done a much better job of it. It's so frustrating that we made so many mistakes in the early stages and lost so much time. And now here we're, we are. Know what we're doing, we know what we're doing. Sorry, sorry, Alex. Sorry. Um, yeah, sorry. Here we are. Not much time. What's your, what's your ambition? What's your best case scenario? Okay, yeah. Best case scenario is that we uh, bring forward a timetable that we can see is going to make money. Uh, did I say operating in December 19? I should have said on the December 19 timetable, but I think we would actually start operations in 2020, maybe um, January, February. We have to train a bunch of new drivers. We can't even start training drivers until uh, we've been awarded uh, a track access contract. And you know that, that can't happen until the new year. So um, that's kind of the best case scenario now. Oh, it's, um, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think we're assembling pieces of jigsaw. The, uh, the run times report that we have now is a very important step forward. Um, the rolling stock is really good to have in the bag. But unless we can actually find a timetable that Network Rail are prepared to accept in terms of capacity, we are still stymied just as before. And that has not happened yet. So, yeah, still work to do. Still Sounds work. like really, really hard work. So, um, Jeremy yeah, Corbyn. And, you know, everyone in GoOff is now working on this unpaid. You know, there is, there is simply no fun in paying anyone for their time, so it's just I have to squeeze it into my spare time as best I can. I mean, that is oh, great. So if, it, if it works, it's going to be a magnificent achievement. Um, Big Jeremy Corbyn has talked about renationalizing the railways. What would that mean for a cooperative? Surely he wouldn't nationalize a co-op. Well, renationalization could mean two things. It could mean taking the franchises back into direct state control and open access is unaffected. It could mean that he thinks the government should have a monopoly on running train services. I don't think that's where they're heading. But the honest truth is that, you know, we've looked at all those pronouncements of the Labour Party and all the things they've said. They don't know that much about rail. That's not a criticism. You know, they have loads of other things to do. They're not rail experts. I don't think most of them are aware of open access rail existing, which given that it only operates 0.1% of the services, is fair enough. So basically their aspiration, their big idea, has loads of details still to be worked out, and until they're worked out, we've no real idea how it will affect us. I'm rather assuming that while they will want to get franchises back under state control, they will not necessarily want the state to have a complete monopoly on rail services. That would be a very big step. Um, I, I think they might stop short of that. So I, my suspicion is that uh, the Labour Party's plans don't particularly affect us. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've said that they want to double the size of the cooperative economy, so nationalising costs wouldn't make much sense, would it? It wouldn't, um, but, you know, uh, they can only work with what actually exists. When you're up in government, 
uh, it's a very long distance view. You can only really see big things, and it's very easy to accidentally squish small things because they're just too small to notice. Yeah, and we are too small to notice. Yeah, I was, t I was talking to Duncan McCann at the uh, New Economics Foundation. He's trying to build an alternative to Uber, cooperative alternative to Uber. Yes. When he was doing the crowdfunding, he, they, they raised the license requirement from um, two and a half thousand pounds for a five year license to two, two and a half million. Yeah. And so he had to move out of London. And, yeah. and he talked to the regulators and they, they weren't trying to crush him, they no. just didn't realize he existed. No, or that anything could exist like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They were just okay. trying to get more money to for the admin costs, extra admin costs that Uber caused. Yeah, um, but I, you know, it is the it's the biggest problem with government is that it, government always says we want innovation, we want openness, we want people to be able to be able to try new things, but then inadvertently take decisions that wipe out an entire level of the the business ecosystem in the sector. Yeah. And that means that smaller organizations can never build their way up to the higher levels. And, uh, and it effectively grants a sort of collective monopoly to the organizations that are already in, that are already through the door and have reached a certain stage. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we've, only, we've only got a few minutes left, so I'll, I'll, I'll maybe talk to you another time about lightweight community transport, which we haven't touched at all, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Yeah, well, okay. yes, um, but, and you know, the, the interesting case study to look at there, I think, is Preston and Preston Tram Power, where you have, um, and should, I should say, Tram Power is not a co-op. It's a private business, uh, and they are trying to introduce a tram completely independently. You know, the no particular involvement or support from the municipal authorities. Um, we are, we're, you know, we're trying to help them with it. We're trying to support them with it. And we are hoping that we can introduce an element of community participation by doing that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's another example of where our country seems to be unable to make these big collective infrastructure decisions. And so the whole thing gets handed to the community sector by default, and the community sector just the scaling up and the resources, the capacity needed to take on these big things is—it's um, a huge challenge. And once again, you know, if we can do it once, we can do it over and over and over again. But doing it the first time, absolute bugger. Mm. So uh, yeah, we, we've we've partnered with Open Dot Co-op. Um, Oliver Sylvester Bradley. I don't know if you know him. I don't actually know. No, and uh, we're going to start a UK mutual credit network, and we've got a finance innovation lab fellowship to help us do it. Uh, I just think it would be so fantastic for people to be able to pay for train tickets with mutual credit. Um, yeah, and, and I'd I'd like to keep in touch with you about your progress. And um, in fact, if you could give us an expression of interest, uh, and when you start operating, we could get back in touch, and we could we could uh, you know keep you up to speed. I'll send you a. I'll send you a link so you can just please do, Dave. Please do. I'd be very happy to. And I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll subscribe you to the blog as well, so you can see other interviews and you can see what other people. Are I'd doing. be very happy to. That would be great. All right, brilliant. I'll send you some information about that, and uh, I'll let you get off to talk to um, National Rail. Thanks ever so much, Dave. All right. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Alex. Speak I'll speak to you soon. soon.